we have during one of our services together, but are finding new ways to do that right here and right now. Again, it's great to be with you uh, this Wednesday evening. Typically, I'm like you on the other side of the screen, you know, at home in the living room or wherever you find yourself tonight. And so I'm glad to be with you from this perspective. Uh, We're continuing our studies through the Gospels or rather through the parables of Jesus. And I'm thankful that we as a church are uh, giving place, as Jesus said, to for those who have an ear to let him hear. And that's exactly what we're trying to do, to give careful attention to the things that Jesus is saying so that we can respond appropriately. Tonight, our particular parable is found in Luke chapter 18. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, grab them, open up to Luke chapter 18. And when you get there, make your way down to verse 9. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14 together tonight. And our parable tonight is going to have a slightly different feel than maybe some of the other parables that we'll study together. Many of the parables are subtle things. Their message and their meaning is really only understood as, like Jesus said, those who have an ear lend an ear to hear as, they give, as we give careful attention and, and spend some time trying to answer, where do I see myself in this parable? What is Jesus trying to say? Again, it's really only as we have ears to hear that we hear what God is saying to us through the parable. Our parable tonight is different. It has all the subtlety of a two by four up against the head. There is no chance you'll miss the message this parable is trying to communicate. There's no chance that the intended audience won't realize that they're being addressed. So the danger of our parable tonight is not so much that we'll miss it, Now, the danger here tonight is that we won't like how we see ourselves. We'll see ourselves clearly. We won't like the reflection we see in the mirror of God. And so we'll just simply turn away from it. And so as we read through our verses together tonight, let's prepare our hearts. Let's say, God, I'm willing to respond to what you're showing me about myself. Let's give ourselves that place of lending an ear and preparing our ear to hear and respond. And so let's read through our verses together. We'll pray and then we'll jump in. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together tonight. Father, thank you again for the mirror of your word, that you haven't left us alone in this life to try and grasp and just fumble around in the dark to find spiritual truth or make it up as it seems fit to us or to really know where we stand with you. But Lord, you've given us the light of your word, the mirror of your word, that we could see ourselves accurately. And we pray that you would speak with clarity tonight. 
and that we would have the boldness and the willingness to respond appropriately, Lord. Sometimes it's not so much a question of clarity that we don't get what's being said. Sometimes it's an issue of, of willingness. And we pray that each one of us would be willing to respond tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke right away tells us in verse 9 what this parable is about and who's being addressed. Again, he says he spoke this parable, that is, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised other. Now, the story is about how two men prayed. But again, the real thrust of the story is not so much about prayer, but this other lesson. You could look down to a key detail down in verse 14. There, Jesus concludes the parable and reminds us that one man left the temple justified while the other man walks home still carrying his guilt of sin. This parable, as we see, is, as Luke highlights it, he kind of brackets it front and, and, uh, and the back of the parable. He lets us know that this isn't a parable about some religious minutia. This isn't a scholarly debate about some minor detail. This parable is about one of the most important questions any of us can ask. It's about how we are righteous. It's about how one finds and grabs hold of a right standing before God. Now, I know we're just a few minutes into the study, but let me say this. Is, there is no more question important than this one. How are you made righteous before God? How does a person find right standing before his maker? How do we deal with this infinite gap between our fallen humanity and God's perfect righteousness? What do we do with that? How do we respond to that? These are important questions. These are questions that impact all of our eternity. And they demand an answer. We can put them off for a time, but ultimately we'll have to ask and answer these questions. And so with those in mind, we come to the first person in Jesus' parable. Now, again, in verse 9, we read of those who trust in themselves that they were righteous. What a colossal mistake this was. Because the Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. And if you're not the type to let the Bible speak to you about yourself, if you're not willing to let someone else make an assessment of your life, then let's do the hard work together of just uh, examining our own lives, of being honest with ourselves. And to just ask the question simply, are you a perfect person? And I know it sounds a little bit silly to ask the question, but that's God's standard for having fellowship with him is absolute flawless perfection. And not compared to the people around you, but compared with God himself. Are you a perfect, flawless person? Or has there been a season in, or a time in your life where you did something wrong and your conscience tweaked you? You knew inside yourself, I didn't do the right thing in that moment. I didn't say the right thing. I didn't speak as I should have or do as I should have. And you knew that that perfection of righteousness was somewhere, but now you were beneath that perfection. Or maybe on the flip side of things, there was an opportunity for good. You should have done something good, but you left it undone. You walked away from a circumstance. You kept your mouth shut when you should have said something. And your conscience, again, bore witness to you that the perfection of righteousness was here. But we were less than that standard of righteousness. None of us 
can measure up to God's standard of perfection. None of us can meet this call for holiness that uh, righteousness before God demands. There are no perfect people, you and me included. I love what a teacher named J.C. Ryle says. He says, never are men's hearts in such a hopeless condition as when they are not sensible to their own sins. Are you sensible to your place before God tonight? Are you mindful of where you stand with him? Jesus is about to bring this home to us through the story of how these two men prayed. Now we'll read about the first man in verses 10 through 12. He prefaces this by saying two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The first person in Jesus' parable is a Pharisee. Now, just by way of review, you and I, if we've grown up in the church, we may view the Pharisees as the bad guys in the Bible. But at the time of Jesus, these men were the religious elite. And when I say elite, I don't necessarily mean their place in society. I mean elite in the sense of religious performance. These men were the NFL or the NBA or the professional athletes of their day. They were the absolute elite. And so when this man lists his religious activities here, he's probably not lying. The Pharisees took religious obedience to the nth degree. For example, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus acknowledged that the Pharisees even tithed on their spices. So when the Pharisee in the parable says that he tithed on all that he had, he means all down to the spices in his pantry. Can you imagine bringing home your groceries and you break out your thing of oregano and there's a thing of cinnamon and okay, here's one for God. Here's nine for me. One for God, nine for me. Literally, that's what these men did. Tithed down to their spices. And this is just one example of their religious performance. They would wash their hands in a ceremonial fashion. This man mentions fasting twice a week. Some of us are feeling super spiritual if we fast twice a year. This was a a, a weekly practice for this man. The Pharisees would memorize huge portions of the Old Testament. You and I are lucky if we even know the books that make up the Old Testament. These men were diligent in every conceivable fashion. They truly were the religious elite. But the bitterly ironic consequence of all this religious devotion was that it created a distance from God and a confidence in themselves. I'll just say that a bit again. All this religious observance, it created a, a false sense of who they were that resulted in a distance from God. You can hear it in his prayer, can't you? He might open with an acknowledgement of God, but who's the centerpiece of his prayer? He is. He's the centerpiece of his prayer. I do this. I do that. I, I, I. You can hear it all throughout his prayer. One commentator calls this a prayerless prayer. He says it was simply burning incense before the clay image of himself. This man hadn't come to worship God. He had come to worship himself. Now, a couple observations from the man. First, this man's high view of himself 
it's going to result not only in a false sense of where he stood with the Lord, but also a low view of others. Because before he tells God of all the good things he is, he tells God about how bad these others are. The Pharisee sees himself as an entirely different class and sort of person. All the folks that he passed on the way to the temple, he sees himself as not just different than they are. I have straight hair. You have curly hair. I'm tall. You're a bit shorter. I like this food. You like that food. Not so much just different. He saw himself as inherently better than others. He despised others. He imagined himself in this place of superiority and he's able to look down on all the lowly people around him and how this goes against the heart of God and how you and I as followers of God need to uh, avoid and this type of thinking to guard ourselves against it, against it. Think about it this way. When Jesus came down to this earth, did he keep himself apart from the type of people this Pharisee despised? Extortioners, tax collectors, the folks that the Pharisee said, I'm thankful that I'm not like these people. No, instead, Jesus sought them out. He went into their homes. He loved them and he loves us. And so as his disciples, we have to follow that example we can't hold ourselves as superior to those around us. We can't think that we're innately better than the other folks on our shift at work, other folks in our office or in our class. And even more pointedly in this time of sheltering in place, we can't think of ourselves as better than, the other, than those in our home. Now, maybe our religious practices are different. Maybe we have a certain diligence with our Bible reading or certain uh, diligence in prayer that others don't. Or maybe we are surrounded by people who don't have a relationship from, with God. But apart from God's work in our lives, we are no different than anyone else. You know, for example, how easy it is to watch the news and to see that someone has been arrested for this thing or that and I'll be honest, there are plenty of times where I look at the news and I see someone who, who is in that place, I see the mugshot, and I just think, what an idiot. I would never do something like that. What a fool. And I might not articulate that. I might say that out loud, but I, honestly, and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it, it's, it's there in my mind. And buried beneath those words is the notion that I'm an inherently better person than they are that I'm incapable of making those same type of choices. And it's a false notion. That idea that I'm not capable of those choices couldn't be further from the truth. Now, gang, we may not parade ourselves before God like the Pharisee, but we are capable of despising people just the same. Check your reaction as you read your news feed. As you see so-and-so is making another bad choice in a relationship and you think, oh, I would never do that. You see, someone's been fallen into this trap or lost money in this scheme or whatever it is. And all of a sudden we elevate ourselves up and they fall down in our eyes and we are an innately better person than they are. We need to guard ourselves diligently against the hate, the haughtiness that came so easily to this Pharisee because it comes so easily to us. 
And it's not something that we just have to work on once and then consider it done. It's something that we diligently need to work because these attitudes come to us so naturally. Now, a second thing I'd like for us to observe from the Pharisee is the emptiness of his prayer. As I said earlier, this truly was a prayerless prayer. This truly was a man worshiping his own image in the house of God. Notice that Jesus said that he prayed with himself, or at least that's how it reads in the New King James. The ESV and a few others read something like this. They might say, standing by himself, he prayed, which serves to highlight the distance that the man was keeping from people like the tax collector. And that certainly is true. He was setting himself apart. He did see himself as superior and not with those type of people. And perhaps the Greek simply means that he stood apart from others. But the New King James, the NASB, and a few others take these same Greek words to mean that the man spoke to himself about himself. And he was certainly doing that as you read the prayer. Now, you and I can quibble over exactly what the Greek is trying to communicate, but the danger of either is true. You see, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's exactly where we see this Pharisee. The Pharisee, and we see here, and others like him, were experts at exercising their religion for others to see. They would announce their tithes. They would make sure others knew when they were fasting. They prayed these loud, pretentious prayers so that people would think that these are incredibly spiritual people. The Pharisees were drawing near to God with their actions, but their hearts, they wanted to be seen by their fellow men. Certainly where we see the Pharisee in our parable, and it's a hypocrisy that's easily at work in our own lives. It's so easy to put on a religious mask, to have others think that we're something special while we're in truth remaining distant from God. You know, this shelter in place thing has been a great revealer of my own heart and my own motives. I think about uh, being in your place tonight, worshiping God in my own living room. Do I raise my hands in worship in my own living room, just as much as I do when I'm surrounded by others who are there to see my passion for God? Do I have the same type of awe for God in my living room as I do when I'm here in the church building surrounded by people who are there with me to kind of witness my religious devotion? Or maybe now that no one can really check up on me, that same type of weekly check-in that we typically have with one another, have I let my foot off the gas, spiritually speaking? I decided, you know, I'll just kind of coast for a season. And when this whole thing uh, lets off and we can be back together, then I'll, I'll pick back up the pace. It reminds me of something that we're seeing in these days of video conferencing and, and Zoom meetings. How many of you have seen something like uh, this slide or maybe done something like this guy? Above the frame where the camera can see him, of course, he's got the suit and tie on. But below where the camera can see, he's wearing PJs. As an amusing image, we're probably actually all guilty of having joined a Zoom meeting wearing a, a, a buttoned-up shirt up top and just our PJs or sweats where the camera can't see. Certainly make you think when you go to your next Zoom meeting and you're checking in with your boss or you're the rest of the folks on the team. 
But I bring it up to say not so much to talk about Zoom or video conferencing literally, but how many of us are doing the same thing spiritually? Like the Pharisee in the parable, we may appear one way, but in reality, we're something else entirely. How many of us are drawing near to God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him? It's a question worth asking. You know, just like it was wrong for the tax collector, or excuse me, for the Pharisee to think that he wasn't like the tax collector, we'd be wrong to think of ourselves as not capable of the sins of the Pharisee. The Pharisee thought, I would never be like that tax collector. And you and I would be just as wrong to think I could never be like that Pharisee. And so let's be those who call on God with a pure heart. Let's worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's draw near to him with our hearts and our actions. A Pharisee gives us much to be warned by and to learn from. Now, we, we turn a corner here as we transition to verse 13 because Jesus switches to the second person in the parable. And he says a tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a point of contrast this is. As Jesus did with the good Samaritan, he couldn't have picked a more unlikely par- uh, hero for this parable. To use a tax collector as an example for people to follow, it would have been jarring for his listeners. It would have shocked them to see the tax collector put in the position of the good guy, the example to follow. But in this parable, he is, and there are things that Jesus wants us to see in him and follow in our own lives. Because remember, it's the tax collector who's going to go home justified and righteous in the eyes of God. Think about his trip to the temple and how it differed from his walk home. He leaves the temple with this light heart, knowing that God has seen and heard. Jesus describes him as being justified. What a sense of relief and peace that brings us. But in contrast, this man came to the temple with a broken heart. Everything that we read about regarding the tax collector from his words, his posture, his place in the temple, it all demonstrates and speaks of the brokenness he felt towards his own sin. Jesus describes him as standing afar off. Now, this wasn't because he felt superior to others like the Pharisee. Rather, it was the custom of the day to stand apart while confessing sin. This man knew himself to be a sinner, and he didn't want to solely the others who had come to worship God. We read that he kept his head and his eyes down, knowing himself unfit to even look to heaven. It's an idea found in Ezra chapter 9, verse 6, which reads, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face up to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. The tax collector felt this overwhelming sense of shame and humiliation over his sin. Even to look to heaven was a privilege he didn't deserve. And we read that he beat his breast. Nowadays, you might see an athlete beat their chest out of pride or a sense of passion. Not so with this man. Adam Clark sheds a bit of light on the practice saying, smiting the breast was a token of excessive grief, 
commonly practiced in all nations. It seems to intimate a desire in the penitent to punish that heart through the evil propensities of which the sin deplored had been committed. It was a desire to just almost strike the thing that had made such sin possible. And finally, listen to his prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In contrast to the Pharisee, the only thing this man has to say about himself is a confession of his guilt. This is brokenness. This is what Paul would call godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And Jesus makes a summary statement regarding this in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said that it was this man who went home justified before God. The New Testament twice quotes this proverb which says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The tax collector humbled himself before God. And it was through this brokenness and desperation that the man finds salvation and forgiveness. Now, let me just clarify that statement a bit. Because it's not just brokenness over sin that saves a person. Martin Luther, for instance, before this idea of justification by faith dawns in his heart and his mind, Martin Luther would take the practices of of self-denial, beating himself with whips, sleeping in the snow without a blanket, spending hours and hours in confession. Luther was broken over his sin. What was he to do? He tries these things and yet the sense of guilt remains. The tax collector here shows us the answer. Let's think about him again. He stands apart. He lowers his gaze. He beats his chest. And he was justified. Just like that. Those three simple steps. You can do them at home. Stand apart. Lower your gaze. Beat your chest. Salvation is accomplished. No, of course not. That's not at all how it works. Those things are great and they might be important, but they're incomplete without the last thing that we see in verse 13, where he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The thing that saves the man is that he cries out to God. In his brokenness over sin, he cries out to God for salvation. He asks for mercy. Mercy, to put it simply, is not getting what we deserve. You see, our sin deserves judgment. We talked earlier about how none of us are perfect. We've all done things that we, our conscience told us we fell short of that standard of perfection. We've all left things undone that we should have, uh, good that we should have done. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's standard of glory. And the thing that our sin deserves is judgment. The wage or the payment for our sin is death. And so mercy is not getting what we in truth deserve. But biblical mercy isn't God simply ignoring justice and sweeping our sin under the heavenly rug. When the tax collector asks God to be merciful, he uses a specific word. Young's literal translation renders it like this. God, be propitious to me, the sinner. Be propitious. Yes, you can use that in your own prayers and and it'll get you extra marks. I'm teasing. It doesn't get you any extra marks. But it is a word worth knowing. 
Because propitiation, it's a fancy Bible word for a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. The tax collector is acknowledging his need for a sacrifice to cover his sins. He knows that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for his sin. He's clinging to the message of the whole temple system. The only way to approach God is through an atoning sacrifice. And this is how God can be merciful. God doesn't simply wink at our guilt and wave us on into heaven. You know, kind of the, the, the good old boy network that we have with God. We know a guy. No, God doesn't work that way. It would be a violation of who he is. And so in love, God provides a way for our sin to be paid for. So that according to Romans, that he can remain just while also being the justifier of those who've sinned. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 says regarding the sacrifice of Jesus for by one offering, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This tax collector called out for a sacrifice to make mercy possible. Jesus on the cross offered himself as that sacrifice. His one offering of his life, paying the penalty for all sin, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, yours, mine, All sin for all time. The guilt that the tax collector felt was placed on Jesus. Each and every sin that marks our lives has been placed on Jesus. Those things that make us all guilty before God, Jesus has become that atoning sacrifice. Through his death, he has become propitiation for us. And now you and I, And find mercy when we go to God. When we come to him for forgiveness and cry out like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He can say, I can do that. I have mercy to give you. When we make the prayer of the tax collector our prayer, we find that we too can go back to our lives justified rather than remain with our sin. Now, it won't be too much longer, but I do need to ask, are you justified before God? Do you have right standing with God? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you know where you stand before God? Again, to quote J.C. Ryle, never are men's hearts in such a hopeless condition as when they are not sensible to their own sins. Are you aware of your condition? Do you know where you're at in this parable? What it is that you're counting on to make yourself righteous as the parable begins with? If you're in need of calling out to Jesus, do so. The beautiful thing about the tax collector's prayer is not that it it was a long prayer. It was certainly eloquent in any certain way. The tax collector, uh, his prayer would have been despised and dismissed by the Pharisee. And yet it was exactly what was needed to save him. He simply with the best that he knew to do, called out to God for mercy and salvation. And each one of us has that same opportunity where we can call on God Find mercy from him. Are you sensible to your own condition tonight? Now, 
As we said earlier, one of the chief teachings of this parable is how one is made righteous before God. Some, like the Pharisee, trust in their own efforts. And this is nothing but a a delusional self-confidence. And Jesus here, like we said at the beginning, has taken a two-by-four to that illusion and crushed it. You and I are only made righteous as we humble ourselves and ask God for mercy and the covering of Jesus's sacrifice. I hope that we are all settled in those ideas and those truths. But we'd be too quick to finish if we didn't notice once again the contrast between pride and humility. And we'll close with this. The pride of the Pharisee blinded the man to his own sin. This this untrue, elevated sense of self made him blind to his true condition. And it made him despise his fellow man. It led to a religion that lacked any true relationship or connection with God. Pride was destroying the man from the inside out and he didn't understand it. In contrast, we see the humility and brokenness of the tax collector. He humbled himself in the temple, not drawing close to the other worshipers. He humbled himself before God. And because of this, God was able to forgive him and lift him up. The Bible is clear. It's a message that God repeats over and over and over again. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a spectrum that stands between pride on the one side and humility on the other. And we're all somewhere on that spectrum. We're all, in fact, a mixture of things in which we're prideful about and things that we're humble about. We're never exclusively one or the other. And so the question is, how do we become more like Jesus, who humbled himself even to the point of death? How can we become aware of our own pride and its terrible consequences, not blind to it like the Pharisee? How can we embrace humility as individuals, as families, as a church? How do we embrace humility? Because I'll tell you what, the world doesn't need more Pharisees. The world doesn't need more people who have an unjustified high view of themselves. The world needs people like Jesus who will humble themselves, who will realize we're no better than anybody else, who will realize that God has been merciful to us and so he can be merciful to you. God has sent us out into this world to be humble. And I certainly don't want to be in that place where God has to say to me, Jason, I need to resist you right now in your pride. That's not a battle I want. That's certainly not a battle I win. And so let's examine our hearts and see where we might need to be humbled a bit. Such a simple parable, such a simple story, just a few short verses, and yet it's so packed it full of truth. And if we'll have ears to hear, I know God will speak to us. Let's close tonight and we'll turn back our attention to worship. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word and your willingness to shine its light into our lives and teach us about ourselves. Lord, the thought of being the Pharisee and being blind to our our own condition, it's a scary thought. And I pray tonight that we would give an honest look into the mirror of your word and let you speak to us, to let you transform us, Lord. We know your desire isn't to break us out of uh, some sort of vindictive nature or just a, a malicious heart. 
Lord, your desire is to transform us in always for our good. Always to draw us closer and bring us nearer to you, Lord. And that's our desire tonight. Is that having spent time in your word, we would hear what you're saying and what you're saying to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.